Yo, it's Jacob, your host of Holy Book Breakdown, your favorite Bible-centric podcast where I talk in a way that annoys people who are more educated in religion than I am. Let's have fun with it. Last week, two weeks ago, episode two, I covered Noah and his big-ass boat, Noah's Ark and the Flood, that wiped out almost all of humanity outside of Noah and his family, and then I covered what Noah did afterwards, which includes punishing his grandson because his grandson's dad saw him naked. And we also covered... 32 verses on genealogy or so uh, of Noah's descendants that took us all the way to a man named Abram, which is where we will begin today. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. So the first verse of chapter 11 tells us that everybody on the earth had one language and they all shared that knowledge. In the second verse, it tells us that people continued to migrate east to the, quote, land of Shinar, end quote, and they all started to settle down. The third verse tells us that they made bricks and stone and whatever other materials it took to build a city. And in verse four, it tells us that there was a city with, quote, a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. End quote. There's some foreshadowing there. Just so you know. The people kind of predicted what would happen to them, it appears. Verse 5, the Lord God comes down and sees the city. This is one of the earliest references I can think of hearing God coming down from somewhere as though he's descending from the heavens or from the sky, which in chapter one, the heavens and the sky are synonymous. They mean the same thing. Heaven has yet to take on any other role, really, outside of just meaning the sky. But it appears that the Lord God lives in the sky. God is surprised in verse six. He's like, whoa, behold, just like every other verse where God says something, and it's always behold, but it's okay. It's pretty epic. It feels Shakespearean. But God said, quote, And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. End quote. After realizing how the city is and the fact that they are all one people, he's like, man, these folks, nothing's going to stop them. And then in verse 7, God uses a pronoun again that confuses me. He says, quote, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech, end quote. That's the entirety of verse seven. But at the beginning, he says, come, let us go down. So us, who is us in this case? Is he talking yet again to other heavenly bodies? Is he just talking to the stars and the clouds and the birds? Or is he up there? up there metaphorically hanging out with other gods is he talking to like a group of elite mercenaries that he's hiring to mess up the tower of babel or is he talking to angels it's unclear so far still but in verse 8 god dispersed the people and they stopped building the tower of babel so god sees humans capable of achieving anything and then he decides that he doesn't want that 
Which is interesting, because it doesn't say anything about him hating violence or corruption at this point. Although we do know God's stance on that currently is something about the intention of man being evil from his youth. That may be close to a direct quote from a few chapters ago. Verse 9 has a footnote in there where it tells me that Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. So God went down there and he fucked up everybody's language. He just decided to mix it around in a big bowl and make it real tough. Porque, I mean, sorry, why? He, why would he not want unity? Is this book teaching us that being completely unified and being a single, almost hive mind-like structure of society without like warring against others? Or at least being able to understand everybody on a decent level? Does God not want that? Is that ungodly or a bad act in front of his eyes? But the name Babel comes from God's actions more than the people who started living there. They didn't build a tower and name it Babel. God went down there and the abandoned tower was named Babel after he dispersed all the people. Because it sounds like confused. It's the Tower of Confusion. The tower where God decided a unified humanity was not a good idea. But he also dispersed the people over the entire face of the earth. He didn't just ruin language. Verses 10 through 26 in chapter 11 tells us entirely about Shem's descendants. It's another long list of names. But it does mention his daughters. It doesn't name them. But it does mention his, a bunch of his sons by name. Classic sexist bible writers probably don't at all care about women's perspectives but all of those people it tells us live more than 120 years which earlier in genesis god said was the limit of man that their flesh shouldn't survive forever but that their spirit will or that the holy spirit will but shem is descended from people blessed by god Verses 27 through 32 give us more names, more places that people migrated to further in Shem's life. There's this, uh, it follows Terah's descendants, another line connected to Shem, which is connected to Noah, which is connected to Adam, which means it's all still incest. I don't know, the Bible likes incest. But two women get mentioned by name. Terah fathers Abram and two others. One of Abram's brothers dies in front of his father, Terah, which is rough. But Abram and Nahor, his other brother, uh, end up taking wives and fathering children. And it does name two women, like I said earlier. There's Milcah, the wife of Nahor, who does have children. I think, oh man, I just went silent for way too long and I left that in the recording. People would think there's something wrong. I'm rereading the Bible right now, and I'll just read these parts to you. Verse 29, quote, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah, end quote. That's the entirety of verse 29, and I believe, so the Abram's brothers are Nahor and Haran. Haran fathers a guy named Lot, and also Milcah and Iscah. So, so Nahor's niece, Milcah, becomes his wife, and they have kids. I believe that's what it's telling me, but I did get high before this, and the Bible makes me think incest thoughts about the characters. Disgusting. 
It also tells us that besides Milka having kids and being her husband's niece, Sarai was barren. That's all we get to know about her right away. Sarai marries Abram and has no children. Okay, so conclusion on chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, that whole tale tells me that God doesn't like it when people all work together. And in the little subsection of Terah's descendants, there are lands that get named after people throughout the Bible, like the land of Canaan, one of the first men on earth, or the land of Cush, named after a guy named Cush, as well as Egypt and all these things. But due to this being an English translation, Terah is the father of somebody named Haran. And verse 32 tells us, quote, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran, end quote. So you could either take that to mean Terah died literally inside of his son, or Terah died in the land of Haran, which it tells us Haran goes to and settles. But because this is a translation of a book that is much centuries old, the land of Haran doesn't have a name before Haran settles there. So Haran is both the land and the person's name, and there's no easy way to distinguish between the two in an English translation where proper nouns are all capitalized and the name is spelled the exact same. So verses 27 through 32 confuse me. But on to chapter 12, the call of Abram. Abram is related to both Noah and Shem by a long lineage and hundreds of years. But verse 1 tells us that God calls Abram to go to a new land. And in verse 2, he tells him that he will make his name great, quote, so that you will be a blessing, end quote. Verse 3, it tells us that God will bless those that bless Abram and curse those who dishonor him, quote, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, end quote. So it seems... If, if one person or family is blessed, then through him all people are blessed, but there are still some of those people who would curse Abram and then be cursed. But I guess being cursed and blessed isn't mutually exclusive. You could technically have both of those things apply to you. But, I mean, will Abram, like, looking at this back again through the eyes of God, the, like, Imagining your eyes are the eyes of God, or a part of the eyes of God, as are all other human beings' eyes, will Abram, being blessed and acting blessed, spread blessings upon everyone he encounters? I don't know. Who fucking knows? In verses 4 through 6, chapter 12 tells me that Abram, his wife Sarai, and his nephew Lot all bail out of the land of Haran past the land of Canaan, who also was related to them. Okay, here we go. High thoughts. Canaan was cursed by God, but he still had a land named after him that he went to and became either famous in or settled it or was like the leader of a family or a clan there. Just a, It's just a reminder that Canaan was Noah's grandson who was punished for his dad seeing Noah naked. He's still got an entire place named after him. But Abram, Sarai, and Lot all continue past the land of Canaan. And in verse 7, the Lord gives part of the land to Abram's family and his offspring. So Abram builds an altar, and the Lord appeared to him. If you thought the Lord appeared to you, it 
would either be in physical space right in front of you, or it would be a hallucination or something in your mind making you see this person or feel this presence in your mind's eye. But uh, does the Lord appear to him in the humans he meet, maybe? He meets, maybe? I don't know how the Lord appears to him. It could be mythological, like he just swung down from the heavens on a chariot pulled by Pegasi. In verse 8, Abram continues to move, and he builds another altar. And in verse 9, it tells us that he continues to move towards the Negev. In verse 10, we get a new subheading titled, Abram and Sarai in Egypt. Verse 10 tells us that there's a famine and that they left to Egypt because of the famine in the land they were. And in verse 11, Abram calls Sarai beautiful, which is sweet. That's nice. Who doesn't like to hear they're beautiful? Somebody, everybody, tell me I'm beautiful. Verse 12, Abram suggests that the Egyptians will kill Abram to steal his wife. And in verse 13, Abram tells Sarai, if the Egyptians ask, tell them they are brother and sister to save Abram's life so that they won't have to kill him to end the bonds of marriage and take a beautiful woman. This is also pre-Ten Commandments, which I believe lying might be one of those. If not, lying is considered typically a sin, but Abram is lying to save his own life. So I guess it's a-okay in God's eyes. He's blessed, so anything he does is pretty, pretty all right. In verse 14, it tells us that the Egyptians that see Sarai think she's hot. And in verse 15, it tells us that the princes of Egypt took her to Pharaoh's house. Mm-mm. In verse 16, it tells us that Pharaoh treats Abram well uh, for his new wife's sake, for Sarai's sake. He was treated really well with, quote, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels, end quote. I don't know. That's just such an unnecessary list. In verse 17, it tells us that God gave Egypt the land of Egypt, plagues because of Sarai, because of her false wedding, I guess, her false marriage to Pharaoh, the fact that she was still Abram's, in a sense. Uh, it doesn't describe what the plagues are, but boy, a plague doesn't sound good. We're in the middle of one right now at the time of recording, and I, it's no good in any way. In verse 18, it tells us that Pharaoh confronts Abram, Verse 19 tells us that Pharaoh says to Abram, quote, Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go, end quote. And in verse 20, it tells us that Pharaoh sent them all away, Abram, Sarai, and all of their possessions. That's the conclusion of that. It seems like God takes marriage very seriously, which is pretty good, I guess. If there's a concept where two flesh become one as the goal, where two people become a complete unit with each other in its in their entirety, if that's the goal of marriage and something gets in the way of that or something would imply that they aren't each other's entirely, such as another wedding, it seems that God isn't into polygamy right now. And God doesn't like it when people sleep around or mess up with their marriage. A bond like that, a bond where you promise to be each other's one and only, when that's broken, look at the way you react when you hear somebody got cheated on. My first instinct is to say, that guy or girl, 
usually guy is horrible a monster and they should be punched in the teeth and like broken their nose or something I, I it's not a good thing that people do typically it's a a really serious offense i've found and people's reactions to it are such so if god disagrees with that that could be again his own conscience or other people around him who know going like come on man you can't be like that if God is a singular, all-powerful being, and he sent plagues down because his chosen person broke the bonds of marriage, that's intense. That's a lot of people hurting because of one guy's move for safety and wealth. I would like to point out that multiple men previously who had also been blessed and chosen by God have had multiple wives and multiple female partners. So it really does seem like God doesn't like it when women sleep around more than when men sleep around. He is actually kind of pro-polygamy, but not having multiple husbands for women. He also doesn't seem to be very into open relationships if the woman is the one having sex with people other than her one husband. So, great. That's all for chapter 12. So now we're on to chapter 13. The first verse tells us that Abram, Sarai, and Abram's nephew Lot go into the Negev, which I imagine is just another land. Verse 2, it tells us that they're still loaded with the livestock and silver and gold. And verse 3 tells us that he looped through the Negev towards Bethel, quote, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, end quote. It's a full circle. It's a hero's journey to beginning to end. He's on to another loop. That's kind of one piece of the tale. That's like the first bit of rising action that concludes nicely in a giant adventure where he's going to continue on. Verse 4, it tells us that Abram visits his first altar and calls upon the Lord again. And verse 5, it tells us that Lot, his nephew, also had a bunch of livestock and tents. And verse 6 tells us that the land they had arrived at couldn't support both Lot and Abram's camps and tribes and people. Verse 7 tells us that there's trouble brewing between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Their workers and their slaves are kind of getting at each other's throats. It also tells us that, quote, At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. End quote. So there's two groups of people already living in this land on top of Abram and Lot's camps. In verse 8, they agree that they shouldn't fight because they're family. And in verse 9, it says, quote, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. End quote. So they find a compromise. They decide to split up and move on to different camps. And verse 10 has a little bit of foreshadowing on what's going to come. It tells us that this is all happening before God destroyed the town, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, two separate lands. But it also tells us that Lot settles throughout the entirety of the Jordan Valley. And verse 11 tells us he heads east. So they've split up now, Lot and his uncle Abram, who is still kind of the main character for a few chapters. Verse 12 tells us that Abram settles in the land of Canaan, and that Lot settled in the valley. 
and got pretty close to Sodom. Verse 13 says, quote, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. End quote. Yeah. Verse 14 tells us that God talks to Abram and tells him to look north, south, east, west, look all around you. And in verse 15, God continues and says that he will give Abram and his family and his offspring the entirety of anything he can see. In verse 16, he promises that Abram will have as many offspring as specks of dust on the land, as there are stars in the sky. He will have so many children. God's promising it. And in verse 17, it says, quote, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. End quote. In verse 18, it tells us that Abram moves his tent, heads out to a place called Mamre, Mamre, M-A-M-R-E, and he settles down near the Oaks of Mamre, near a place called Hebron, and he builds yet another altar. This chapter was mostly exposition for what is about to come, the next chapter. It's pretty exciting. But from that exposition, we get a little bit of foreshadowing. God destroys places. They're called Sodom and Gomorrah. They're places that if you grew up my style of Christianity, you've heard of them before. I think they're commonly used as foils for Las Vegas nowadays. Places full of vice and sin and greed and corruption. So God is okay destroying those places. We don't know how yet, though. It's just got that foreshadowing. It tells us that Lot and Abram split up, and Lot settles near a place full of evil people. So I hope something bad doesn't happen to him. Oh boy, here we go. Chapter 14, Abram Rescues Lot. Chapter 14 has some Game of Thrones-style shit. Some intense combat between multiple kings. And verses 1 and 2 set up the history for us. So there are fucking... There are eight kings mentioned in the first two verses, and I'll list them by the side that they're on. So the side with Abram on it, I believe, it has King Amraphel, which is the lord of Shinar, King Arioch from Elazar, King Chedorlaomer, 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 whatever, from Elam, and Tidal from Goim. And then the other side has Bera from Sodom, Bersha from Gomorrah, Shanab from Adma, and Shimabur from Zeboim. Pretty cool. Eight kings established right there. And in verse 3, it tells us that they all joined up in the Valley of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Verse 4 tells us that for 12 years, all the kings and all the people, it seems, served Shadorlaomer Shador of Elam. Shadorlaomer. Shadorlaomer. But in year 13, they rebelled, it seems, which the number 13 is really unlucky in uh, U.S. culture. So I thought that was worth noting that something bad happened in the 13th year. Verse 5 says, quote, In the 14th year, Shadorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated, end quote. And then it lists another long list of names that are really hard for me to pronounce. But a bunch of kings from other places and a bunch of groups he takes them down. Verse 6, it continues to list the groups that the large army just wrecked all up to the border of the wilderness. And in verse 7, it tells us that they turned back and defeated all of another three groups. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that the same four kings I listed in verses 1 and 2, plus another king from Bella, 
decide to fight against Shador Leomer. Quote, four kings against five, end quote. That's the part that gives me fun Game of Thrones vibes. The War of Five Kings. Verse 10 tells us that as the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated, there's these bitumen pits that a bunch of the people fell in while running away. It doesn't tell us explicitly who won, but we know that the people from Sodom and Gomorrah and maybe the three other factions that are with them got defeated and fled. And verse 11 says, quote, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. End quote. Verse 12 tells us that they also took Lot, which is Abram's nephew, because he was living near Sodom. Uh, so they took Lot and everything he owned and went away. I'm so confused. I can't tell. I've read this part at least three times through, and this is my fourth time reviewing it while I'm doing the podcast. And it doesn't make it clear if Abram or Lot are on either side. Because Sodom and Gomorrah have been listed as listed as more bad places, places that God doesn't like, and there's foreshadowing of them being destroyed and danger that Lot is settled near them. I would assume that the men fleeing from the battle and some of the enemy there ended up taking Lot and his possessions rather than the other side, because it doesn't make sense if the other side did it. But verse 13 tells us that someone who escaped the battle came and told Abram. So in verse 14, Abram takes 318 trained men, quote, in pursuit as far as Dan, end quote. I don't know how far Dan is, but sounds like it's pretty far. Verse 15, it tells us that Abram splits up at night and ambushes the enemy and wins. Just picture the scene. 318 men split up to go ambush another force that had recently lost a battle to retrieve his nephew and all the possessions. In verse 16, it tells us that Abram brings back all of his captured kin and possessions. There's a new subtitle at verse 17, Abram blessed by Melchizedek. So verse 17 tells us that uh, there's, it's so vague. It tells us this, quote, after his return from the defeat of Chedolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the Valley of Shava, end quote. That right there, the part where it says, his return from the defeat of the king Shadorleomer and all the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the Valley of Shava. So the king of Sodom defeated the other kings? It told us that people from Sodom and Gomorrah were fleeing the battle earlier in the chapter, and now it sounds like the king of Sodom won. It's just horrific. Translations, man. It's just, I'm doing this so you don't have to. But verse 18 says, quote, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, end quote. It does tell us that he was a priest of God Most High. This is in the Valley of Sheva. So I'm assuming Melchizedek, the king of Salem, lives close to the Valley of Sheva, and he's hosting the king of Sodom and Abram. Verses 19 and 20, Melchizedek says the blessings to God and Abram for God. It does say, again, it drops the hint of God Most High. This chapter uses the term God Most High three times in three verses right next to each other. God Most High of where? Is he just really smoking down on something? Or is he hanging out in the clouds? Or high like exalted, like raise it high? In verse 20, we learn that Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he earned from his victories across 
the known world. Verse 21, it tells us that the king of Sodom wants the people, like probably as slaves or servants, but not the goods. He tells Abram he can take the goods. And verses 22 through 24, Abram says that he won't take anything except for the food that all his men already ate and the men who were with him. Uh, he doesn't want to do it for, it, it seems like there's two possible reasons that I've discovered so far why he wouldn't want to do it. One is that he's implying he does this all for God, not for the wealth. So he's just taking what he needs. He did it for God and he did it to rescue his nephew, but he's not doing it for anything else. Or he could be implying that he cares about others' perception of him. If they see him as doing this for wealth or riches, he doesn't want them to all say that. He doesn't want people to be like, look at Abram doing shit just for money, because it's not how it is. He's claiming it is doing it for God and for Lot. So maybe he just cares about being branded something he isn't. But that's this chapter. The Bible... Genesis knows how to make a war between four kings and five kings seem boring and confusing. There is nothing about, no epic battle tales, nothing magical or crazy happening at all. Simply, these people went here and won, they went here and won, they went here and won, and these people ran away, but then also those people might have won and the people who kept winning might have lost, and none of it matters, and it's all confusing. But Abram receives a blessing from a priest of God Most High, and he wins a bunch of battles and rescues his nephew. It's exciting, in a way. He also proves his reasons. He doesn't do it for wealth. Chapter 15. God speaks to Abram in a vision and says, quote, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. End quote. So verses 2 and 3, Abram asks what the reward will be, since he has no children, he's got no heir, no son, no direct bloodline to continue his name. And in verse 4, God tells him that he will have a son. And in verse 5, he tells him to count the stars if he can, and that he'll have more offspring than there are stars. And verse 6 says, quote, And he believed the Lord, and counted it to him as righteousness. End quote. In verse 7, God is like, I took you out of the land you were to give you all this land to possess. This land is yours. And in verse 8, Abram is like, well, how do I know this for sure? How, how am I to know you're really giving me a 100% guarantee? And verse 9 says, quote, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, end quote. And in verse 10, Abram obeys, and he cuts all the animals that aren't the birds in half and lays them on top of each other, and then lays the birds on there too. And in verse 11, it tells us that he keeps the crows away, all the carrion birds. He makes another offering on an altar, so God yet again just likes dead animals. He just loves those dead animals. He listens to them. And in verse 12, it tells us that Abram falls into a deep sleep and, quote, Behold, ha, as always, but, quote, Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, end quote. So God comes to Abram during this huge, deep, dark sleep. And verse 13, God tells Abram that his kids will be servants in a land that isn't theirs for 400 years. And in verse 14, it tells us that God will bring judgment on that nation and they'll gain plenty of material wealth after the 400 years, where they live in a land that isn't theirs for a while. And in verse 15, 
God tells Abram that he will live long, and in verse 16, he tells him that the fourth generation will return, quote, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, end quote. Uh, iniquity is a gross injustice or a sin, in case you wanted to know. So the sin of the Amorites isn't done yet. They're going to continue to do injustices. Verse 17 says, quote, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. End quote. It's all ooh, dramatic. I really wanted to set the scene there. And verses 18 and 20 just tells us that, again, God makes a promise with, to Abram, telling him that, his offspring will own the entire land and displace 10 groups that he names off that I'm not going to read to you. And that's the entirety of chapter 15, God's covenant with Abram, as the chapter says. It's just more foreshadowing about what is to come for 400 years of Abram's bloodline. On to chapter 16. The first verse of chapter 16 tells us that Sarai never had kids, but quote, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, end quote. Verse 2, Sarai tells Abram to impregnate Hagar and that she'll have a surrogate. I, I don't... So, guys can have multiple wives, but when Sarai was married to Pharaoh and Abram, God plagued the entire land of Egypt and ruined everything because he didn't like that. So, God teaches us to be possessive of women and let guys do whatever the fuck they want including marry multiple people, impregnate other people who aren't their wives. Abram decides he will go along with this plan because sure, why not? Free pass. Verse 3 tells us that this is 10 years into their life after the last chapter and Abram gets the second wife. So 10 years after God promises Abram that he'll have kids, he finally has a kid by impregnating his non-wife. Verse 4 tells us that Hagar, quote, conceived, end quote. And then, quote, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, end quote. So Hagar has this kid, or gets pregnant. So Hagar has sex with Abram. Hagar knows Abram. Call back. And then she looks at Sarai with contempt. She stops digging Sarai. She's like, either... She thinks she deserves more because she is just a servant and is now pregnant with one of her master's kids. Or she maybe she fell in love with Abram or really liked his dick or something. But she looks on Sarai with contempt from here on out. Verse 5 tells us that Sarai blames Abram for this and says, quote, May the Lord judge between you and me, end quote. She's upset. She thinks Abram turned Hagar away from her. Because this is going to be Sarai and Abram's kid, not Abram and Hagar's kid. And Sarai is worried about how Hagar is behaving. It's, that's fair enough. Verse 6, Abram tells Sarai that Hagar is hers to deal with still. She's still mostly Sarai's servant. And it does tell us that Sarai treats her harshly. We don't know exactly what she does, but it's enough to make Hagar run away. In verse 7, an angel of the Lord finds her near a spring. This might be one of the first references of angels of the Lord. The only one I can think of earlier on is in the first episode, the first five chapters of Genesis. I think it's chapter 3, the fall, where God places a cherubim with a flaming sword at the gate of Eden. But that isn't directly an angel. 
This is the first time an angel has really been mentioned as another being. In verse 8, the angel asks Hagar why she ran away. In my mind, it's probably because she's a fuck slave to a couple who owns a bunch of other people. And in verse 9, the angel tells Hagar to go back. In verse 10, the angel promises Hagar she'll have innumerable children. I don't know if that's a great promise for somebody who ran away while pregnant with her master's kid. Because if you just did that and then someone came and was like, no, it's going to be all good. You're just going to have hundreds of children. I'd be like, I don't want to keep burying my master's kids. Stop. Verse 11 and 12 go a little something like this. Quote, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. End quote. So I'm going to dive a little deeper into this. Ishmael means God hears. So because the Lord listened to Hagar's affliction, her kid will be named God hears, a proof that God listens. It also hints that Ishmael may be aggressive or a fighter or a warrior or just a jerk, a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. It also, the very last line of Verse 12 is confusing because it says, quote, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen, end quote, which is unclear. It's another direct contradiction, just like the past few chapters have been full of, where you can't tell if it's predicting that Ishmael will lead his kinsmen or fight all of his kinsmen or be against them. It's very confusing. Verse 13, it tells us that Hagar does feel like God has seen her. And in verse 14, it tells us that the well, or the spring, the natural water that she's at, will be called Bir Lohoi Roy, which means in Hebrew, the well of the living one who sees me. So she names the place where the angel communicates with her after God, praising the fact that she feels seen and heard. In verse 15, it tells us that Hagar has a son, and that Abram named him Ishmael. And in verse 16, it tells us that Abram was 86 years old when this happened. So that's most of chapter, that's almost all of chapter 16, titled Sarai and Hagar. It's got a lot less direct contradiction than some of the earlier stuff, which is nice. It feels like a linear story. God is pro-slaves. God is pro-fuck slaves. God is pro-returning slaves to their owners. It uses the word servant a lot in this book, but a lot of the times it refers to servants being bought or sold, or captured. So, slave is the more modern update that they should do to this. But it does put God in a harsh light, considering the way we look at slavery nowadays. Also, God is so misogynistic. So are the people throughout all 16 chapters so far. Nobody seems to give a shit about what women want, ever. When Sarai got mad at Abram, God and Abram were both like, Look, lady, calm down. We'll handle it. Whatever. <laughs> On to chapter 17, Abraham and the Covenant of Circumcision. This is the last chapter of this episode. The first verse tells us that Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him again and says, quote, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, end quote. 
Verse 2, God promises him yet again that he will multiply Abram greatly. That's a direct quote, multiply you greatly. Verse 3 says, quote, then Abram fell on his face, end quote. Which I assume means falls forward and like puts his face down before God, you know, some sort of kneeling position, like worshiping, almost like child's pose in yoga. It in the little bit I know about yoga. But in, in verse 4, it repeats the covenant yet again. And in verse 5, God changes Abram's name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. In verse 6, he promises to make Abraham into nations. His offspring will contain kings and lead entire countries. In verse 7, yet again, God says he's establishing his covenant with Abram, in case you didn't catch it earlier, any of the other times throughout the past four chapters. And in verse 8, God gives the fam all of Canaan, the land of Canaan, forever, and will always be their God. He promises that he will always reign over them. And in verse 9, God says that Abraham will keep the covenant yet again. He's like, you and I will have this thing, dude. Again, he just keeps reiterating. He's like, my covenant, my covenant, my covenant. It's dope. In verse 10, God says that as a sign of the covenant, every male in his family should be circumcised. In verse 11, he clarifies that you should chop off the foreskin of all your kids and yourself. And in verse 12, both... It reaffirms that both family and the slaves that are bought with money will be circumcised. Any member of his household should be. And any fresh babies, any freshly born kids should be circumcised at eight days old. Which is interesting because normally it's seven throughout a lot of the earlier chapters. Seven has held a lot more power. Uh, seven days, 70 years, I don't know. The continual use of seven has been pretty prevalent i've tried to point it out whenever i recognize it but i don't understand eight days old being important for circumcision but i'm gonna keep an eye out for other eights now in the bible uh verse 13 repeats verse 12 basically word for word it's pretty great and then verse 14 says quote any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant end quote that's super rough. Um, if you want to get into politics, I have multiple friends that feel very strongly about male circumcision in the modern era. Because, I mean, the two points that have stuck to me the most are that babies can't decide if they want to lose a part of their body or not. And it's an unnecessary surgery on a child. It doesn't have any proven health benefits as far as I can tell. But I know there's some people out there that are circumcised and would therefore have their son circumcised. And that that's all well and good, but it's not tough to teach your kid how to clean his penis. It's just a fucking, it's just a thing you can do. You don't have to be all weird about their penis. And they can decide to be circumcised when they're an adult. I know it'll heal a lot slower, but... It is still a surgery you can have performed on you when you're old enough to decide if you want to be a part of the faith. But God says that if you're not circumcised, you've broken his covenant. So, sorry. No salvation through God for you. The next subheading is Isaac's birth promised. And in verse 15, God tells Abraham that his wife, Sarai's name, will also change to Sarah. Both those names mean princess, apparently. 
which is pretty exciting. It means Abram will, Abraham will basically be a king, and Sarah will be his princess. Ugh, God, that sounds less fun. Wouldn't you rather her be a queen instead of a princess? Because that, well, I mean, the Bible is pro-incest, so Sarah's just a another incest princess. Verse 16 tells us God will also bless Sarah, and quote, She shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her, end quote. And then in verse 17, Abraham falls on his face again, but he laughs this time and points out that Sarah is 90 and is like, are you, are you sure that a 90-year-old is going to have a kid by me? A 99-year-old? Are you certain, God? And verse 18 goes like this, quote, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, end quote. I can't tell if he's pleased unhappy or disbelieving i don't quite know what that means but he is pointing out that his like son his son not really sarah's son but his son still does live before god but in verse 19 god promises that they will have a kid named isaac isaac in hebrew means he laughs which is fun abraham laughs when god promises him he'll have a kid and then he's like God points it out and is like, well, now you're always going to remember that you laughed at me when you look at this kid and be like, ha ha, I did have a kid in 90, wow. Verse 20, it tells us that Ishmael, Abraham's kid, his first kid, will father 12 princes. And then in verse 21, it tells us that God will establish a covenant. Again. But he also points out that in a year's time, Isaac will be born to the 90-year-old Sarah. In verse 22, God, quote, went up from Abraham, end quote, when their conversation was done. It's another little point at um, the heavens or God's domain being above humans. Verse 22, Abraham circumcised everybody right then and there. That very day, every single member of his household. Which, in an earlier chapter, 318 trained fighting men went with him. And we know that Back then, his tribe was too big for the land to support his tribe and any other tribe. So he probably just had a huge circumcision festival, like a line that went for hours. That is horrific to think about. I wonder if he used the same knife over and over. Thank God they all already share blood. Thank God. I can't believe I say that. Verse 24 says, quote, Abraham was 99 years old when he circ- was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, end quote. Ouch. Ow. Ow. Wounds take longer to heal like that when you get older, and that is horrific. That, God. Especially since immediately after he has to try and get his wife pregnant with Isaac, at least within three months. To fulfill what God says. Verse 25, it tells us that Ishmael was 13 when that happened, which is maybe psychologically more damaging, but physically less, I think. In verse 26, it repeats that they were both circumcised. And in verse 27, it repeats that everybody else got circumcised. So my conclusion for this is that people who are circumcised are God's chosen, and he's very fickle. It's time for the wrap-up. I had less fun with this episode than the past two, 
But a lot of that is due to being confused and trying to explain something that I can't make sense of to other people. Like, if I can't make sense of it, I don't know how I'm supposed to be able to tell you what I'm interpreting. But what I'm interpreting is that this book is full of contradictions. And not even, like, the big things, just a bunch of little things are contradicting. It makes it hard to tell who's on what side, who's fighting for what, who believes in what. But we do know that Abraham is chosen by God, and there's a bit of a prophecy that's been established involving Abraham's descendants leaving their land for 400 years and then returning with more wealth than they had when they were taken. They should all be servants, or they all will be servants. Ishmael will father 12 princes. Sarah and Abraham will father nations of people. Father. <laughs> Parent nations of people give birth to nations. It's all fantastical. I really thought it would all be as exciting as the creation of humanity and the apple and Noah's Ark, but really the further and further I get into it, the more I realize I'm going to have to slog through a lot. So future episodes might not end up being as in-depth on the verses themselves, and it might just cover segments and chapters all in shorter goes, because I don't want to spend two years on the first three books of the Bible trying to decipher bad translations that contradict itself. That's just the way it is. Shoot me an email. I'd love if you could tell me your interpretation of these chapters, especially uh, the War of the Four Kings versus Five Kings. That whole section, thanks to an excess of names, really threw me off. But the email is holybookbreakdown at gmail.com. Super easy. I have a friend who Twitch streams. He's the guy who did the art for me. His name's Cole. His Twitch is wolfrack underscore. W-U-L-F-R-A-K underscore on Twitch. He does good art. See if he wants to do a piece for your podcast. Next week, we'll see how far I get into the Bible, but I wholly expect that thanks to the pure amount of contradictions and repetition, I'm going to be covering more and more each time until I come across something that really fascinates me and really gets my brain moving. The version of the Bible used in this podcast is the English Standard Version, uh, the Economy Edition. The text edition is from 2016, publishing by Crossway. Uh, if you want to hear more from me or start a discussion or tell me I'm wrong about something, hit me up at the email. It's holybookbreakdown at gmail.com. And if you want to see the person who did the art for my show, check out wolfrack underscore on Twitch. W-U-L-F-R-A-K underscore on Twitch. Thank you for listening. It'll get more fun from here, I swear. I have successfully released one of these every 15 days since the first, so I'm expecting that will continue to be the schedule. Love you guys. Have fun. I'll see you on episode four of Holy Book Breakdown. Breakdown.